Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Henderson MB Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information on our church, visit hendersonmbchurch.com. Some of you have heard this story before, or at least parts of this story. Uh, Back when I was uh, working with Trek, uh, one of my co-workers, great guy by the name of John, uh, came into the office one day, and he's like, I I signed us up for a webinar, and this was, you know, kind of early, mid-2000s, and I was like, what's a a webinar? He's like, well, it's like a seminar, but but it's on the web. It's like, well, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. And uh, he... And we didn't know what it was about other than that it was for short-term missions programs. And we were running a short-term missions program, so that seemed a good fit. And uh, so we, you know, log in, and, um, you know, the guy is hosting this webinar, and he has some kind of guest speaker. And, uh, and, and you know, they do kind of the intros, and then the guest speaker was like, okay, so I have a discussion question for all those listening, all these short-term missions programs. What's your ransom policy? And John and I looked at each other, and we're like, are, are, are what? Like, I know what a ransom policy is, but why do we need a ransom policy? And this guy proceeds to go through and, and unpack stuff. And um, he was from an organization called Crisis uh, Consulting International. And what they do is that when your short-term worker gets kidnapped by whoever in whatever country, they'll step in and they'll help out with negotiations. And they were all like ex-cops and FBI and... This was, this was their thing, and there was, they had the example, they, uh, some church had done a short-term missions program to, I think it was Afghanistan, and some guy got kidnapped, and it was about two years before they got him back, because they would enter in negotiations with some warlord, because for them it's just business, right? Kidnap somebody, uh, hang on to him for a bit, and then sell him back and make some money. So they would enter in negotiations, but then the, the prisoner would get sold to someone else, and then they would have to start negotiations all over. And so um, it was kind of a, a, an interesting deal. But, but actually there was so much, um, like over the next year or two, a lot of fascinating things came out of that initial question of what's your ransom policy? I mean, we obviously went over to the long-term mission department and we were like, what's our ransom policy? Do we have a ransom policy? You know, and, and sort of the... Um, sort of the phrase that, that you say publicly is that, well, we don't. We don't have a ransom policy, and we're not going to pay, which is not very comforting, you know, because you can break a computer and get a new computer, but if you're kidnapped, sorry, you know, you're out of luck. Um, but, but kind of what, what's not shared is that even though they won't pay, they will reimburse for expenses just in keeping you alive and well. So that's kind of the unspoken uh, nitty-gritty on, on that one. But... Um, so there was actually all kinds of interesting stuff, and uh, we a- and we started to wonder too. I mean, if we would, if we, you know, if we were to ever send a short-term team into more restricted locations, like what kind of training would that require? Because we knew that for the Chinese, their short-term missions training involved a lot of stuff like cross-cultural sensitivity and gospel and hermeneutics and that kind of thing. But they also train their guys on how to get out of handcuffs in 30 seconds or less and how to jump out of a second-story window without breaking your legs. You know, so I'm Googling handcuffs in the office, like, do we, do we need handcuffs? Like, what, what are we doing here? And um, so, but actually, when we sat down and we talked about it, we realized that, that the people who worked in those 
circumstances, we felt were really good at two things. They were really good at, at listening to God's voice, and they knew Scripture really well. Well, we already had great teaching on hearing God's voice, but so what we did is then we incorporated Scripture memorization, and then from that point forward, every day after lunch for 30 minutes was dedicated to Scripture memorization, and just as much as you could shove in your brain, do it. And so there would be, you know, the, the dyslectic dude would get like four verses, and the keener would get like three chapters or four chapters. And so it was really kind of a, a remarkable time. One of the other things that, that came out of that was, because um, uh, it kind of pushed the, the long-term department to really think through some stuff as, as well, too. But this, I, I guess you would call it a policy, where both the, the people on the field or, or the head office, either one could say, this is too dangerous, like, let's call it, you need to come home, and the other party would just agree to respect that. Because the, the, the head office, some, they only see what's on CNN, and so they can freak out, um, but at the same time, the people in the field, it's kind of like the analogy of boiling the frog in water, where it just kind of gets worse and worse and worse, and they don't realize kind of how, how bad it's gotten. Um, for instance, we had a team in Thailand, and there was a military coup, and so we called up the Thailand people and we're like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, no big deal. This is like the most relaxed coup you've ever heard of. It's just in the capital. We locals are looking, it's no big deal. And we're like, all righty, military coup, no bother. Um, at the same time, we had a team in Congo in, this was about, when was this? Maybe 04, 05. And they would send back their reflections and they were, in, in their reflections, they would like, they, there, was, there was an event that had happened, and they were kind of casual, just kind of like flipping about it. Like one girl wrote her whole reflection, and then it's like she forgot, and she was like, oh, by the way, if you could also pray for our safety, because um, their elections were supposed to happen. And so the students are claiming that they've imported thousands of machetes and that if the elections don't happen, they're going to swarm the government building and hack everyone to bits and overthrow the government. So we're on lockdown for a few days. And we had an event a couple days ago where some drunk soldiers were harassing us. And but then the market all rose up in our defense because they'd walk through this market like four times a day. They all rose up in our defense and like shuffled us out the back and got us into a taxi and that kind of thing. And I was like, what? is going on over there and i literally had to rewrite their reflection and send it back to them and they're like oh yeah i guess it's a lot worse than we realized yeah thanks that was that was a funny email and um so it's just kind of crazy sort of what what all happens we are in uh as you know we're in acts where the our series is called we are acts 29 uh because we are living out the 29th chapter in acts of acts and today we're in acts 8 and, um, and, and the best word that I could think of was just upheaval. There's a lot of upheaval in the church, and some of it is, is internal, uh, not like in a bad way, but, but more just God is, is kind of taking them to the next phase of his plan. And so it's really kind of drastic what happens, but also a lot of external upheaval as well, too. And it's only a few verses that, that get mentioned in passing, but, but when you look at the bigger context, it's really quite huge. Let me read this to you. I am in Acts chapter 8. I'm starting in verse 1. I'm just going to read about eight verses here. Um, so Stephen, we talked about Stephen last time. Stephen had originally gotten signed on to, to wait tables, to hand out food 
uh, to the widows, and then his ministry really grew and expanded, uh, and then he was martyred. Uh, And then chapter 8, verse 1, Saul is there. That's the guy who later becomes Paul, one of our greatest missionaries. Uh, So Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They, they, They hung out in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. So I'd always, or not always, but, you know, I mean, Saul persecuted the church. I mean, that's, you know, if you've been to a couple Sunday school classes, like you've heard that, like that's, you know, you've got that message. Um, But I never realized just how bad it was and how, like, how bad Saul was until until you start to see because late in some of his letters Saul will reflect back on this time later on in the book of Acts there'll be mention of Saul during this time um, so he's at Stephen's uh, execution or murder he gives full consent of that the word it says that he was ravaging the the church another word uh, would be to destroy it but the Greek word on that like typically how that would be used is when a wild beast is tearing like meat off the bone like, so imagine like a leopard or a bear or a lion, and it's, and it's literally ripping the prey apart to, to eat it. Like, that's, that's kind of the, the, the picture that, that they're trying to convey. When uh, Saul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears to him, Jesus calls him a beast. Uh, it says that he, uh, later on in Acts, we read that he persecuted men and women unto death. Uh, he entered both houses and synagogues. He had believers imprisoned. He had them beaten. Um, He would try to get them to renounce their faith in Christ. Uh, In later years, Paul described himself as exceedingly mad against the church, as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, uh, as violent. Uh, Saul Saul was a bad man who did a lot of really bad things. And it's, I don't think Saul talks on it, but it's interesting to wonder... You know, for a man who persecuted the church so fiercely and then entered into ministry, how do you just deal with all that you've done? The churches that you have destroyed, the families that you have torn in half, the people you have thrown in prison. I mean, do you go back and try to visit these people in prison or widows? Do you say, hey, I'm sorry? Like, how do you, how do you handle that as a believer knowing that that was part of your, your life at, at one point in time. Saul was such a threat, and he was so ruthless, that when he was converted, Scripture says that now the church experienced peace. That, that's how pivotal he, he was in that. Uh, immediately after Stephen is stoned, this persecution breaks out against the Christians, uh, and as a result, they, they scatter. And now remember, this is part of kind of a larger escalation. Beginning of Acts... Uh, Peter and John are arrested. They're brought before the council, and the council says, 
don't talk about Jesus anymore. And then a few chapters later, all 12 of the apostles are arrested. They're brought before the council, and the council says, don't talk about Jesus anymore, and they give them all a beating. And then a few chapters later, Stephen is arrested. He's brought before the council. He gives a speech, pretty long, pretty accusatory, and then they kill him. And, and, and in doing so, it's like it somehow gave permission or unlocked or just released or something, just this flood of persecution against the, the Christians. 1949, all the missionaries in China are forced out. The communist government is wanting to just eradicate Christians and the Christian church. Uh, at that time, there were less than one million uh, Chinese Christians. Um, they were coming under intense pressure. The government is uh, imprisoning leadership, shutting down places of worship, that kind of thing. And the fear is just that the, the church would just be, be wiped out. Watchman Nee was one of the uh, kind of more popular uh, leaders uh, who came out of that time, uh, written some, some great books. Um, he was widely known. He was a respected leader. The accounts differ. Some say it was a regular church service where this happened. Some say that it was actually a gathering of other pastors and leaders and that he had been asked to speak. Um, but regardless of the gathering, what, what is known is that somehow the, the government had managed to sneak in a couple of their spies into this, this gathering uh, because if he said the wrong thing, then they could arrest him and haul him away to prison. And so, and, and this is an environment where, according to the government, if you preach Christ as Lord and ruler of everything, that's treason against the government. So you say Jesus is Lord, prison time. And you can't really give a good sermon or, you know, talk to your leaders without saying Jesus is Lord. So it's really kind of a, an interesting situation and how is Watchman E going to, I mean, is he just going to just lay it out there and get hauled away to prison? Like, like, what does he do? So the guy gets up, he grabs a glass of water, hasn't said anything, grabs a glass of water, and then he, he kind of pretends to get mad at it. And, 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 and he starts to shake it, and he gets rougher and rougher with it, and he's shaking it harder and harder, and it's like he's trying to crush the glass. Eventually, he's spilled all the water all over the floor, and then in a rage, he throws down the glass on the ground and breaks it, and he just kind of continues in, in this fit of rage, and he takes his heel, and he just, he crushes the, the glass and, and the shards and just works at, at decimating this glass, and then and then some accounts say that he was done there, that he walked off. Some say then he, he kind of had this moment of horror and, and he tried to, to, to brush it up and, and he realized he, he couldn't. Um, but, but regardless, then he walks off stage and he's not said a word the entire time. Like that was his sermon. And so the government officials are like, okay, crazy man just freaked out on stage, broke a glass. Okay, these people are weird. For the Chinese Christians... That communicated so much. They knew exactly, they knew exactly what he meant. Um, the government of China was trying to stamp out Christianity, but every time that they tried to crush it with their heel, all they managed to do was to disperse it and scatter it further and further and further. Um, it just spread into more and more pieces, and it grew and it grew and it grew, just like that glass when he when he crushed it with his heel. 
Randy Alcorn wrote a really good book that, that I would uh, encourage you to read. It's called Safely Home. It's fiction, but it is based on the persecution that, that happened in China. Um, and he writes this, In attempting to destroy the church, the government has spread it. Uh, instead of holding the church safely in its hands, the state has lost control of it. The more the, the government um, stomped the church, the more they spread the church with their own heel. There was... Uh, another time, um, oh yeah, so beyond that, during the, the Communist Revolution, the, the church experienced the largest and greatest revival, revival that's really known at this point in the history of the world. Now today we're actually seeing a lot of stuff happen in, in Muslim countries that could maybe uh, compete with it, but at, at that time it was the largest revival uh, that was known. Uh, Tertullian, in the third century, uh, watched, kind of had a first-hand account of some persecution and he wrote this, Yet nothing whatsoever is accomplished by your cruelty, speaking to those who, who were exerting the persecution. Even when each is more heinous than the last, instead they serve as an enticement to our religion. Indeed, we supply a greater yield whenever you cut us down. The blood of Christians is seed. And even sometime today you will hear talk about you know, the blood of martyrs uh, being seed for the gospel. Uh, there was another guy uh, from Bangladesh. This was a gentleman who had lost um, his, his job, had lost his property, lost his family due to, due to persecution from the Muslims. He made the, the comment, persecution is the rain that causes the church to grow. So in Acts 8, the, the church is forced to scatter because of persecution uh, the word that, that Luke uses when he talks about scattered, it's almost like more of a gardening agricultural term. It's how you would describe someone scattering seed. That, that's, that's what he's conveying there. The church was persecuted, and so they scattered like seed. So the first kind of big idea is just how, how the church is scattered, how it grew under persecution. Uh, but the second big idea is how God is expanding his church to other people groups. And we have kind of this almost like this intermediary step in here that, that, that's easy to miss. Um, you know, one of the last things that Jesus said was he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Okay, he's talking about Pentecost. And then he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's actually this progression that we see played out in the book of Acts. Because at the first part of Acts, the gospel mainly happens in Jerusalem to the Jewish people. Here in this section, we see it going to Samaria, to the Samaritans. And in a few chapters, we're going to see it go to the Gentiles, which is basically anyone who's not a Jew, so that's you and I. Um, which is basically the, 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 the ends of the wor world, or the, the, the rest of earth of the seven men who were designated to wait tables just a, a few chapters earlier Stephen was mentioned first and then we get the story of Stephen and how he is martyred uh, next is mentioned Philip and similar stuff happens with Philip his ministry expands he does amazing miracles um, exorcisms and such and, and people who are paralyzed and lame are getting healed uh, and it says that he traveled to Samaria and he, and he proclaimed Christ and it was amazing. With one accord, they, they listened and, and, and received this message. And it's just a remarkable thing. 
um, just a reminder, you know, the, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. Hated each other. Uh, what had happened is that when the Assyrians had come in and, and conquered northern Israel, the, those ten tribes, they had hauled off most everybody, but they left the poorest of the poor. And then they had imported some other people groups, and those, they had intermingled and, and intermarried, and then, so the Samaritans had their own temple, they had their own priesthood, they were very open and, and vocal about not interacting with the Jews, and so there was this very much, this culturally endorsed, culturally approved hatred of one another. I mean, it was, it was fierce, and, and when, you, when you realize that and you start to look through when Samaritans are, are mentioned and kind of some of the weird comments that get said, uh, it starts to make sense. And this is why the story of the Good Samaritan was so scandalous, because they hated each other, right? Story of the Good Samaritan, a Jew is walking down the road, he gets robbed, he gets beat up, a priest, their highest religious guy, comes along, ignores him. Levite, next highest religious guy, he comes along, he ignores it, but then a Samaritan comes along and helps him out? That was insulting. That was, that was uh, inflammatory. Um, that was because a Samaritan would never help us, and we would never help a Samaritan. And how dare you suggest that a Samaritan be the one to help one of our own kind above one of our, our own religious leaders. Hugely insulting, countercultural uh, statement going on right there. But we see that the gospel is spreading to Samaria. Galatians 3.28, it's talking about salvation. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we're witnessing the gospel expand from the Jews to the Samaritans, who are half Jewish, to the Gentiles, who are full-on non-Jewish. And, and it's kind of this progression. And at each phase, you also see a distinct moment where the Holy Spirit lands on them in a very visible way. In Jerusalem, it was Pentecost. Here, we, you know, you would read about it a little bit later on, about there's this very visible time where the Holy Spirit falls upon the Samaritans. And then in a little bit, you're going to see it happen at the house of Cornelius. Uh, when Peter goes there. Now, when the gospel spreads to the Gentiles, that's just a bit too much. And so, in Scripture, we see kind of a lot more drama around that, that, that it is uh, expanded to them. But, but there is definitely kind of this step where, where it's going to Samaria as well, too. As I, as I told you, I entitled this one, Upheaval in the Church. You know, the first area of, of, upheaval, of upheaval was the external, the external persecution. Um, I heard one of the most fascinating compliments uh, a, a while back. North Point Community Church, second largest church in the U.S., 38,000 attenders. They have a staff of like four or 500. Like, it's just ridiculous. But this guy made the comment. He goes, if you were to wipe out all of their leadership and their Sunday morning gathering, I know that every week there would still be thousands of Christians gathering in small groups all across the city. I thought, wow. That is a remarkable compliment. When a church is in such a place of health that you could eradicate leadership and you could eradicate the Sunday gathering and it would still be a healthy, thriving church 
because there is so much happening in homes and in coffee shops and that kind of thing all across the city. And I thought, we have some work to do <laughs> on that one. Because if, if you were to take away our Sunday gathering, if you were to take away our leadership, I'm, like we, just, we don't have that, that culture, those systems built in of meeting in small groups outside the Sunday gathering. Um, yeah. So f- yeah. So for us to just be a healthier church, for us to lean in on that on that small on that small group thing. Um, here and the other part of of that upheaval was just what was happening internally about and God is God is transitioning their definition of what it means to be a people of God. Because for centuries and centuries, the understanding of what it meant to be a people of God meant that you were Jewish, meaning it was connected to your DNA. And now it is shifting from not what people group you belong to, that is becoming irrelevant. Now it's a matter of, have you said yes to Jesus? And that transition was hard, and a lot of people had issue with it, and they couldn't couldn't make it. But God is transitioning their definition of what it means to be a a people of God. Have you ever noticed how the Bible contains very little information on church structure? I mean, there's some. It talks about elders and deacons. That's about it. And almost no information on what a Sunday gathering should look like. And that is because the church is designed to adapt. The church was built and designed and structured to adapt to its culture, to its era, to the people group that, that, that it's ministering to. At Disney World, every staff member is called a cast member. Because according to Walt Disney, this whole thing is a show. And so everyone who's participating in the show is a cast member. So at Walt Disney World, there are no staff, there are only cast members. Steve Barr, love Disney, love Jesus, wanted to plan a church for cast members, so he planted a church. It's called Cast Member Church. Their tagline is a family of faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. Steve knew that the traditional Sunday model would never work. People are busy, people are working, Disney happens like seven days a week, like that's just, that's not going to fly. So they don't do a Sunday gathering at all. Instead, they have small groups that meet all over Disney property, all the time, random times, afternoons, mornings, middle of the nights, hotel boardrooms, hotel lobbies, coffee shops, that kind of thing. The entire system is almost exclusively small groups that meet. Apparently they have some kind of meeting that happens on Tuesday and Thursday at Starbucks, but... How many people can you really fit into a Starbucks? Um, they also encourage a kingdom mischief, where they encourage their church members to prayer walk all over Disney properties, whether it's the ground or the business office or wherever, and their goal is to have someone prayer walking on every Disney property every day of the year. That is God's church. Adapting to their surroundings, adapting to the people group, and adapting to their to their need. As much as we want church to be a safe place, which is a good thing, church must never be a static place. 
And if it ever does become a static place, then actually we're in a lot of trouble. Uh, I had a coworker that used to say, the church that does not evangelize will fossilize. The church that does not evangelize will fossilize. We don't change our beliefs. We don't change our core values. All of that is set in stone. That's non-negotiable. But we adapt presentation, meeting style, worship style. We adapt our name, our brand, that kind of thing to the culture that we're seeking to love and to reach out to. So in, in Acts 8, the church is, um, it's just a couple of verses and it seems insignificant, but actually there's incredible upheaval that, that is happening. Um, external persecution, uh, some of that from Saul himself, uh, but we have seen in scripture and in history how persecution actually often leads to the church scattering and the church growing. Uh, we also see internal upheaval. Um, not, not unhealthy. I mean, if there's conflict within a church, that's bad. Um, but, but the internal upheaval, though, that we're witnessing is that God is shifting their focus and their direction from a Jewish-only community to something that includes all the peoples of the entire, of, of all the world. And, and so here it's shifting to the Samaritans, and in a few chapters it's going to include the Gentiles as well. And in all of this upheaval, the church adapts. Um, it transitions. It adjusts. It transitions to fit the culture, the era. It never changes its beliefs. It never changes its core values. But it is constantly adapting style to whatever, to whatever is most effective to reaching those in the community. And so we do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for just your great truth that uh, is so deep. Uh, in just a few passing verses. Um, Lord, when, when we look into it, there's just such profound wisdom that, uh, that applies to us even today as, as we read about uh, your church and in its early stages and how that can apply to a church meeting in Henderson, Nebraska, 2,000 years later. And Lord, we just continue to say that, that we love you, that we worship you, that we are here to, to serve you, uh, Lord, we approach you with open hands and just say, Thy will be done. Thy will be done in my life. Thy, thy will be done in, in my family's life. Thy will be done in, in, the, in the life of this church. And Lord, may your message continue ex to, to expand and grow and your kingdom expand. And Lord, we pray for opportunity to share your message with others. That, that your kingdom would continue to expand and that you would be glorified and honored. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at hendersonmbchurch.com or email me directly at luke at hendersonmbchurch.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.